Welcome, everybody. Um, come on in if, uh, if you'd like. Um, all right, so we've been going through the book of Exodus. We'll have um, one more brief session on Exodus um, next Sunday, and then we'll be changing gears. And um, after that, um, our intern David will be sharing with everybody um, a five-week class to close out the summer, and he'll introduce that. Um, and also tomorrow, or so I should say next Sunday, make sure to come um, nice and early because we're going to have a special presentation um, about next steps um, for James. So he'll be uh, sharing at the beginning of, of the Sunday school class. So like I said at the beginning, we're not doing the whole book of Exodus. Um, we're just doing the first half. And um, this is, in many respects, um, a lot of the exciting drama of the book. Um, there's the drama of the attack on um, all of the uh, babies of uh, Israel from Pharaoh. And we talked about how that's the war between the seeds, right? The, um, s- the seed of the woman being oppressed by the seed of the serpent. And how God, in response, arose to defend his people. And he arose in response to his covenant. Remember that from chapter 2? He heard the groaning of his people. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then he knew. He knew their groaning. He knew it was time to act, and he did take action. He called Moses. That was chapter 3, and we we talked about how the call of Moses has so much in it about um, the really the covenant purposes of God, the covenant identity of God. I am who I am. And he, uh, in his complete liberty to act, has taken action to deliver his people. And at the close of that whole interchange with him and Moses, um, we have this key phrase in chapter 4 where he says, um, Tell Pharaoh, let my son go. Remember, Israel is God's son. Let my son go that he may worship me. And uh, we haven't had a chance to talk about this too much. We're going to return to this um, when we do the latter chapters. But um, the word um, serve, um, in terms of uh, Israel serving Pharaoh, being enslaved to Pharaoh, the word serve is the same word as the word worship um, in Hebrew. It's kind kind of interesting how this one word has a greater breadth than we do in our, our terminology. But um, let my son go that he may worship me that he may serve me. So no more service to Pharaoh, service to God, in particular through worship. And of course, Pharaoh doesn't like this, right? And so there's the whole combat between God and Pharaoh, in particular God and the gods of Egypt in the plagues. That was what we um, talked about two times ago. Um, And God showing through these plagues that, yes, he is stronger than Ra, the sun god. He is stronger than all the gods of the Nile, and um, he has triumphed over all of them, and in particular over Pharaoh, who esteemed himself divine um, through the death of Pharaoh's son. And so we have that climactic um, um, plague, and then we have all this instruction about um, the the Passover and all of the... um, the ways in which Israel was able to avoid the effects of that final plague by a substitute, the Passover lamb. 
And that brings us, having uh, gone through the Passover night, that brings us then to where we'll pick up the narrative at the end of Exodus 13. Because of time, we can't do everything. Um, but we're going to do um, the end of 13, beginning in verse 17. And what we're going to do is go through um, the end of 1431. I'm just going to read it all in one big blast. And what I want us to be focusing on are the key running themes through this very dramatic passage. So as you're listening, think about what are kind of like the big ideas, big running themes. This is found on page 65, if you have the Pew Bible. Exodus 13, 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkot and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zaphon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with the officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zaphon. Then Pharaoh drew near. The people of Israel, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians 
so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand before, over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning... In the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before the Lord, flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so that the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Okay, so lots to think about there, and obviously a very dramatic passage in um, the history of redemption. What, what are some things um, that you noticed as key themes or things that seemed important for us to grasp as we think about all this? Yeah, Mike. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just the incredible irony of the Egyptians seeing this pillar come and block their path. <laughs> uh, they're not allowed to, to attack Israel through the night. And, uh, <laughs> and still, still going into the sea. Um, and even uh, just thinking about the larger context, they have seen... The Nile turned to blood. They have seen all these, you know, gnats and locusts afflict them. Um, they've had the, the deep darkness and the hail and um, the slaying of the firstborn. And yet, they still are just flinging themselves against God and against his people. Yeah, and let's just think about that for a second. Like, what is, what is God trying to show us through that um, behavior of the Egyptians? 
yeah, how hard we can be. Yeah. <laughs> mhm. Mm yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the the not just the hardness of heart but the pride of Egypt. Um we can still beat these guys. After all, we've got the chariots and the horsemen and and um that's like the equivalent of saying we've got like the you know, super fighters and the awesome tanks and stuff. Um and the the big powerful weapons in the present time. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so so the hardness of heart and also the pride of is of Egypt's heart. Yeah, yeah Anna. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, th this would have certainly have been seen as divine warfare. In fact, all battles in the ancient Near East were always about your, whose God's tougher than whose God, right? Um, so, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's also a vain boasting in their own God's powers. Um, probably still thinking, hey, we're still on our turf, right? And there's this territorial idea of the gods. Um, you know, there's Ishtar of the Babylonians, and there's Ishtar of the other cities of the ancient Near East, and our particular gods in our locale have dominion over this locale. And um, yes, I think that's part of their pride. Excellent. Yeah. Good. Yeah, that's right. There is actually some obedience of Israel in this pattern. Actually, a couple places, right? Um, Yes. And they actually went the way he was telling them. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Remember um, uh, when... Uh, Moses first came to Pharaoh, and he said, um, the Lord says, let my people go. And remember what Pharaoh says? He says, who is the Lord? In other words, who is Yahweh? I don't know this guy. I don't know this God. Um, and so one of the running themes has always been, who is the Lord? Right? Who is Yahweh? And here, God is showing himself to be um, Yahweh. In fact, that is one of the key things. That they may know that I am Yahweh. And what, just as you're thinking about God's characterization here, how God is portrayed in this passage, what are some of the things that would be entailed that, that, that would go with that idea? Like, how do they know Yahweh here? What are some things that this passage shows about the unique identity of who the Lord is? kinds of truth would they have learned if they had reflected on this 
about who is Yahweh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, everything that is is part of creation, he is completely sovereign over, right? Um, including um, the seas, and the seas are particularly um, in the, the imagery world of the Bible. Um, that's seen as like the place um, that is most rebellious against God. Um, so like when Jonah wants to get away from God, he goes far from the mountain of the Temple Mount, where you, you could say, in terms of the, the cosmology of the Bible, you're closest to God's presence. And he goes all the way down to Joppa, to the sea. He goes into the boat, down into the boat. The boat goes away <laughs> as far as you can get. And then he's thrown overboard down into the depths to the very gates of Sheol, he says in his poem in Jonah 2. That's as far as you can get from God. And yet, what does God show in the whale swallowing Jonah is he's sovereign even there. What is he showing here? And the, the waters being parted is he's sovereign even over the waters, right? And the, uh, as we're thinking about the sovereignty of God over creation, I want to make sure I make this connection. Where else have we seen waters parting and the dry land appear? Noah, and even before Noah, creation, Yeah. So in both of those cases, the Noah with the waters over all the earth, it's a big watery void, and then the dry land appears. And then here, where you've got this watery chaos and the dry land appears, it's in both cases saying there's a new creation happening. Um, and including, by the way, um, it says in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, right? Here we have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters in the pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. Um, in other words, this is a picture of a new creation. God is making things new through his people. So, yeah, sovereignty over creation and also that salvation is a new creation is another thing that's going on in this passage. So God is not content to have a sin-wrecked old creation. Um, he's going to make all things new. Um, and Israel is going to be a picture of what that making things new will look like. Did I see your hand, Ryan? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The false gods, they want you to do stuff for them. We talked, I think, a couple weeks ago about the great symbiosis in the ancient Near East of you do your stuff for the gods, you offer your sacrifices, then the gods will do their stuff for you. Um, but that's not how it works with Israel. And this kind of gets to the point um, that Paul was bringing out. Like, there are elements here where we see Israel obeying, right? Um, verse 4, they're supposed to go this very long. We're going the long way, right? We're not going up through Philistia. We're going to go the long way down to the Red Sea, to this place um, off the Red Sea. 
ends up being um, the very place where they're now hemmed in with, you know, in terms of battle strategies, is where you'd never want to end up, right? With your, your back to the water, right? Your back is against a wall, and here come the Egyptians, right? And there seems like there's no escape. And um, how does Israel respond to that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good, yeah. So God purposefully putting them in the position where they were, making them vulnerable. He knows what's in their hearts. What comes out of their hearts is not just defiance against Moses, but really against the Lord. They don't trust him. And, and look at some of the things they say. Verse 11. Um, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you brought us to die here? <laughs> um, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? Well, they never said that. Right? <laughs> it's sort of like... Um, what were they saying in Egypt? They're like, get us out of here, right? We hate, we hate the, the, this, the bondage. And this will be something that they will continue to come back to, right? Like when they're really hungry, they're like, oh, if only we were back in Egypt when we sat next to the food pots and we were able to have leeks and onions and all this and meat. And, um, and yeah, so they've got this very kind of, not, not so much selective memory, but like, uh, I don't know, <laughs> like they've, their memory <laughs> is like self-deluded, right? Um, we, we knew this was going to be a mistake. <laughs> um, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians and die in the wilderness. So not exactly the response of faith, right? And, um, and yet, and this is the point Ryan was trying to bring out, that doesn't thwart God's purposes, right? He is not here um, because he's hoping that the Israelites will fill this felt need that he has, <laughs> right? Instead, we see his grace, right? In verse 15, why do you cry to me? And this is really interesting, right? Because the ones who are crying out to the Lord is the people, if you look at the end of verse 10. And yet Moses is the head of the people. And so this is going to also be a running theme that he will need to pay the price for the sins of the people. Um, the people sinned and so he must be buried outside of the land. Um, this is a key theme in Deuteronomy. Of course, we also know um, there's another aspect to this. Moses himself did sin when he struck the rock the second time. But there's also this element of Moses as the representative of all, of all Israel and as the suffering servant. So like when we get to the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, we've already seen a suffering servant in Moses um, the one who suffers on behalf of his people. And here we get a little picture of this. Um, he's rebuked. He says, why do you cry to me? And then he says, tell the people of Israel to go forward and lift up your staff here. Um, so when we think about um, God uh, doing this, um, lifting up the staff and opening it, opening the sea, um, how does 
how does God um, want Israel to interpret what he's doing for them in this passage? What are the, what are the terms that, that God gives for how he wants his people to interpret the events they're about to see? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that actually is later uh, when they're fighting against Amalek, but that's right. Yeah, the, the, the Moses's um, actions are clearly being tied to the very agency of God. Yep. And so he is the, the true um, prophet of God whom God has raised up. Good. And, and look... Um, Look at uh, verse 13. Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. So based on these verses, what is God saying he wants them to do? How, how does God want the people to interpret what is happening at the Red Sea? Yeah. That he is fighting for them. He's their salvation. They are doing nothing. Um, translation, this is your champion going to battle, right? Um, you guys, what is your role? Be quiet. <laughs> just, just shut up and let me do this, right? Um, quit your complaining. Quit your belly aching. I am going to get out there, and I am going to fight this battle solo for you. Um, you think of David and Goliath, champions in combat. Right? It's that kind of battle, God in single-handed combat taking on the entire Egyptian army. Yeah. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah, it is like little children, right? Um, everything's going to be okay. You need to trust and be quiet. Yeah. Yeah, and isn't it striking, right? The, the first words out of his mouth are, fear not. Next words, stand firm. Those are words that are always, throughout the Bible, addressed to warriors about to go into combat. So, okay, we're hearing, like, fear not, stand firm. They're, like, being told, okay, get your swords ready. That's what they're thinking, right? <laughs> and what's the kind of standing firm that they're to do? It's the standing firm of faith, right? Stand firm and seek the salvation. And um, isn't it striking who then, uh, when do we see, you know, it has the language of the Lord will fight for you. Where do we see that elsewhere in the passage? Anybody notice? Who else says that? No? In this passage. Look at verse 25. The wheels are clogging, they're driving heavily. The Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for Yahweh fights for them. Right? So another irony of the text is that the first people to kind of really embrace by, f and not so much by faith as by sight, like, here's what's actually happening, is Egypt, right? Um, again, what's this trying to show us? Egypt and Israel are not in any way fundamentally different from each other in terms of worthiness, 
in terms of um, deserving to be saved, right? This is a key thing that's going on um, from basically this part of the story onwards. We've seen Egypt having very hard hearts and doing ridiculous things, like continuing to fight against the God who had just plagued them with the ten huge plagues. Um, we're even going to see their insanity in verse 27 when they actually, they're so like panic crazed that they actually flee into the sea um, in the middle of there, verse 27. And the point of the passage is not to say, oh, those stupid Egyptians, those sinful guys who are so hard-hearted. The point of the passage is to say, wow, Israel is just like Egypt. They're just as hard-hearted, just as lacking in faith. And we're going to see it over and over again. No better than the Egyptians, as uh, Deuteronomy will say. Um, don't think that it was because of your righteousness that I saved you. Right? You were the least of the nations. Um, in fact, I know you'll go apostate, Moses says, when I'm gone. Um, so all that being said, isn't it amazing that God saves us? Right? It's grace. Right? And let's talk about the word save. Notice how many times that comes up here. Um, this is not all of them, but here's a couple key ones, right? Verse 13, stand firm and see the salvation of our God. And then later, um, uh, verse 30, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Based on how that word is used in this passage, what does the word saved Excellent. Yeah, so in, in context here, it is a, like, this worldly deliverance. They were rescued out of um, the clutches of the Egyptians who were about to just destroy them. But as you say, we're going to get to this hopefully at the end. Um, it's also a picture of a, the future true salvation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's an outward marking of the people as saved, um, but what's their actual, you know, in, inside, like, are they actually regenerate? Um, in many cases, almost all the cases, sadly, no. Um, and that whole idea of this as a baptism is directly for, there for us in 1 Corinthians 10.2, where it says, all were baptized into Moses through the sea. So they all passed through the waters of judgment, and they made it to the other side safely. Egypt did not, right? So Egypt is a picture of the flood judgment that will come on the entire world, um, not with water, but with fire at the end. Um, and Is Israel passed through those waters of judgment, made it to the other side safely because of his deliverance, God's deliverance. Did you want to add something there, Mike? Yes. Yeah, there is a parallel. There's a lot of parallels, actually, um, to how this picture parallels um, uh, what Jesus will eventually do. Um, and, yeah, I want to actually take us there, and, and we're starting to get towards the end here. So let me, let me just uh, 
flip through just a couple places where the Bible interprets this event. Because we read in this passage these things, and we're seeing lots of these things. And actually, the first interpretation of this event in Scripture is Exodus 15, the Song of the Sea, which unfortunately we won't have time to look at. But he says, um, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. His horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And look at verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. So again, the Lord fights for Israel. Now, what are they doing? They're singing in praise of a great warrior's power. So God is a fighter. He fights for Israel. He causes Pharaoh's chariots to fall into the sea. And now let's turn to Isaiah 51. And we're going to see how God interprets this later. And, and it, it's so cool, I think, that like there's all this extra revelation God gives to help us process what has happened um, and put on new glasses, as it were, to understand what it is God is doing. So Isaiah 51, verse 9, this is page 727. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old. The generations of long ago. So here they are. It's, 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 these are words directed to Israel as they are in exile. Um, they, are, they are in bondage to the clutches of other powers. And it says, Awake, put on strength, the arm of the Lord, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? And a little decoding here. Rahab is like a um, cryptic name for Egypt. Okay. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? And we know this is Egypt because of what follows. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? So what is this saying about what took place at the Red Sea? What, what's the sort of added level of depth that this verse gives us um, about what happened? Focus particularly at the end of verse 9. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? How does that develop? Say again. It wasn't them. And so he's praising the arm of the Lord, right? It's God in, solo fighting the fight. That's something we have seen um, already in our passage. So that's, that's a good like reinforcement of that theme. But think especially about the imagery of piercing the dragon. Like, what's that connecting to? Where do we see that? Yeah. Yeah. And destroying um, the sinister powers that lie behind, um, you know, the outward oppression of God's people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so like God showing himself visibly, a theophany. In particular, it is him defeating Satan, the serpent, right? The great and mighty serpent of, of old, Satan, who God declared war on in Genesis 3. Now we're realizing this is the piercing of the dragon. This is the slaying of um, not just Pharaoh. He dies, 
and his army dies in the sea. But behind that is a defeating of the spiritual power, um, not just the, the gods of Egypt, but Satan himself is dealt a mighty blow um, here. It's connecting us, in other words, all I'm trying to say is it's connecting us to Genesis 3 and the whole theme of the seed of the serpent being defeated by the seed of the woman. And then notice what it says right after that. And the ransom to the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So in the context of the people in the exile to Babylon, what is their hope? That the arm of the Lord will awake again and that we will have a new and better exodus. Jeremiah 23 says the same thing. Let's just flip over there. Again, what was truly a great deliverance and that actually took place in the past becomes the paradigm for what God will do in the future. Look at Jeremiah 23, verse 7. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as Yahweh lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as Yahweh lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of the countries where he had driven them. Then they shall dwell in their own land. What's this saying about when the people come back from exile? What's this saying about when the people come back from exile? How is it connecting or interpreting that event? Yeah, it's a new and greater exodus. So much, so awesome will this new event be that it will surpass in terms of its defining, like, importance, even the first exodus, right? The first exodus was the great defining event for Israel. Who, are, who is Israel? We are those saved out of, Israel, uh, out of Egypt by Yahweh. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. That's how the covenant begins, right? That's, that's like the defining word. The Lord who, who saved us from Egypt. Now, this is going to be the great defining event. It's going to be a new and greater exodus. Um, so, I once, uh, this is now going back 20 three years. I was in Israel on a class trip. It was like a secular class trip. And um, there was this very prominent um, Israeli archaeologist doing a presentation to us. The guy who ran the trip was like incredibly connected. Um, And he gets this guy in. And it's a secular Israeli archaeologist. And he basically says, there is no archaeological evidence for the Exodus. And he says, just, we have no evidence for it. And as a young Christian, I was like, well, there's the book of Exodus. <laughs> um, that seems like pretty good evidence. I don't know. Um, but, like, his point was, it doesn't even matter if it didn't happen. It can still be a really inspiring story for the faith of people today. So he's like, denying the historicity of the Exodus and saying, but who does it even really matter it's still a really inspiring story today. So based on what we're starting to see and how Exodus is being used by later tradition, how would you respond to Mr. High-Powered PhD Israeli archaeologist? Yeah? 
right? There's, there's questions about where and what's the location and even which sea, which body of water they're passing. Um, it may not be what is today called the Red Sea. Um, so, yeah, there's issues there to work through. But, um, yeah, so, you know, there's, they're always lobbing these kind of grenades at us about, like, you know, the historicity of the Exodus. And there's actually, there are, are things to consider um, about just on the archaeological plane, but I'm not asking you to enter into that. I want you to uh, uh, think about if this never happened, is it still an inspiring story? That's the argument I want you to evaluate. Yes. Why? Okay. <laughs> right. Okay, good. Yes. You can't build your life around a fairy tale. And once the whole premise of how later Revelation is using this, God, his arm in days of old, did this great and mighty deed of salvation. It happened in history, Isaiah 51, 9 and 10. Therefore, Isaiah 51, 11, awake, awake, take up, um, you know, fight for Israel today right? Um, fight for your people, deliver us out of not just bondage to uh, political power, but to the ultimate bondage, which is sin and Satan, right? And so if that first exodus is not historical, right, then like what, what hope do we have that God will intervene in the present today, that he's actually a God who breaks into history and does things that really is impossible for, for humans, right? Like what would have happened? What would have happened to Israel if God hadn't just, like, brought the pillar of cloud right in between Israel and Egypt? They'd have died, right? And they all knew it, right? Um, they would have gotten totally slaughtered by Egypt, and then whoever's left, back to Egypt for bondage forever, right? What did God do? He did something that, that shows his power to intrude into history. And if we lose that, we lose um, the hope for the future. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah, that's right. This is who he is, not just in, you know, 1500 B.C. This is who he is today. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right? Yeah. If Christ is not raised, our faith is in vain, right? This is not just an inspiring story. This is history. And that gives us hope for the historical resurrection that is to come, right? Our future hope. And let's talk about how, um, you know, we've been saying how the prophets are expecting this new and better exodus, right? And I've already brought out this, but I'm going to say it again a little bit more clearly. Look with me at uh, uh, Luke 9. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. In verse 30, you know, it talks about Jesus' clothes becoming dazzlingly white. And behold, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus. So it, it, it's one of these moments where, ah, the, the Greek is meant to, like, trigger bing, 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 light, light bulbs, and all we have is the word departure here, <laughs> which is a good translation of exodus, but... It's so exciting to realize that what it's talking about 
is Jesus's exodus, his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus is the new and better Moses. Um, He's the new and better son. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Here's the true Israel who's about to be going out from what? From bond, the, the, the power of sin and death put upon him on the cross. Um, he's about to depart and accomplish this departure out from that to everlasting resurrection life. In other words, you want to understand the cross, you need to understand the Exodus. Same thing with Hebrews chapter 3. Who is Jesus? Well, you want to know who Jesus is, you need to know who Moses is. But then you can see the contrast. Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, beginning of chapter 3, who who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. And we're thinking, okay, it's not just about faithfulness, it's also about their role. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Oh, he's better than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Moses was faithful as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So Moses was a faithful servant. He did good things to um, show God's power, his deliverance, right? But Jesus is greater than Moses. He is the son who delivers his people decisively. Um, You want to understand what Jesus did, you have to understand the first exodus. But now let's think about how the second exodus is bigger and better. So what are, Mike already brought out one of these um, parallels. What are some similarities between the first exodus and Jesus' deliverance on the cross? One is deliverance from death, right? Um, they would have surely died um, there by the Red Sea had not God intervened and made a way through the sea. Um, Excellent. It was all grace. It was all mercy. Um, they showed themselves to be devoid of faith <laughs> and very fearful and unworthy of salvation. And yet, God saved them. Same thing with us. What are some other parallels between the first Exodus and what Jesus did? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we once were his enemies, um, deceived, disobedient, um, worthless for any good deed, is what uh, Titus 1 says, and, um, and God delivered us anyway. Yeah, yeah, excellent. And of course, there's the new creation parallels, right? Jesus, if anyone's in Christ, behold, a new creation. We saw how the Exodus is a making things new, right? It's God fighting solo for his people. Um, Jesus fought solo for his people. He went in single, single-handed combat against the entirety of Satan and his hosts and sin and death. And that's another parallel, right? Jesus is the son of the woman, the seed of the woman who's crushed the serpent's head. Just as God slew Rahab 
um, the mighty dragon at the Red Sea, God is now definitively defeating Satan through the cross. So all these parallels. Um, also the bondage idea, like Jesus takes us out of bondage, not political bondage per se, although that ends up being incorporated in it, but also most especially our spiritual bondage to sin and death. He liberates us so we can then serve Yahweh and worship him. What are some ways in which Jesus' um, exodus is greater than this exodus? Yes. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's even more grace here where the Gentiles, pictured here with the Egyptians, are even, even we are invited to become children of Abraham and receive um, the promised gift of salvation. Yeah, Jeremy? Yeah, excellent. Yeah, they were freed from bondage to Egypt, but eventually the bondage to sin got so bad that God had to send them away to Babylon to be slaves of another foreign power. This deliverance that Jesus accomplishes is definitive because it deals with the underlying spiritual issue. And I would also mention, you know, last this last one, uh, this first exodus is um, through power and military combat, destruction of the enemies. God wins the second time through dying, right? Through being humbled to the point of death on a cross and giving himself, yeah, as the ransom um, so that there's the, the Passover lamb aspect of the deliverance becomes primary. Good. Well, I wish we had more time to talk, but we've come to the end. Um, let's thank the Lord for his grace shown in the Old Testament. Lord, thank you so much for the many great pictures of our salvation that you've given. And we know, Lord, um, you give these so that we would know ourselves as people in need of your grace. For we are like Israel in so many respects, um, so quick to fear. And um, Lord, we pray, kindle in us a true sense of trust in you, our great divine warrior, that you're not going to leave us or forsake us. Help us to believe and to trust in the new and greater salvation and deliverance. Um, the new and greater exodus that you've accomplished once and for all through Jesus, who is the new and better Moses. We pray that he, his salvation would indeed um, cause us to delight in you, to trust in you, to not um, take to ourselves any boasting as to anything we have done, but to know that all of salvation is all of you. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you.